it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Tuesday, April 19th, 2022. From New York City, it's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you so much for tuning in. Every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern, that's our show. We recommend listening as we air, but if you want to, there's a podcast. It's free of charge. It's on demand every day. All that information is at GuyBensonShow.com. G-U-Y-B-E-N-S-O-N Show.com. I'm here in New York at the worldwide headquarters of Fox News for Fox News, as it turns out. Makes sense. Gutfeld, tonight, 11 p.m. Eastern. I'm on the panel for the full hour. That'll be fun. I just got the topics. I just got the rundown. Going to be fun. Going to be fun. And, in fact, there'll be some very special VIPs and one other person in the audience. And we'll explain who those people are a little bit later on the program today. Also, I'll be sitting in for Kennedy on Fox Business the next two nights, Wednesday, Thursday. Some other TV sprinkled in. So a big slate of media while I'm up here. And look, I'm happy, I'm grateful, I'm stoked, and I'm especially, especially pleased that you're all here with us on the radio program, GuyBensonShow.com, once again, is the website. Here's our lineup. Jimmy Fallon, our colleague, part of the Fox News Radio Brethren, he will be here coming in the next hour, uh, at the top of the next hour, in fact, here in studio, and... Just looking at the subjects that we have on the rundown for him, it's just like put the ball on the tee and have mighty Casey come up to bat in the person of Jimmy Fallon. He will not strike out. That'll be fun right around 4.05 Eastern. At 4.35 Eastern, Joe Concha, Fox News contributor, media analyst. Boy, is there a story to talk to him about today. And it's not just the apparent impending demise of CNN Plus. Ooh, that's ugly. But no, a Washington Post story that is super viral. Conservatives are up in arms. Allegations of doxing a very polarizing and controversial liberal journalist. We will delve into all of that with Joe Concha. Full context coming up. And then Ari Fleischer, former White House press secretary and one of our colleagues here. He's got a new book coming out in just a few months. He will preview the book. It's about the media. I think if you get annoyed with the mainstream press the way that I often do, this will be a cathartic discussion. That's just my guess when we talk to Ari Fleischer later today about that. Plus, what does he think of this whole move from the White House press secretary. Of course, that used to be his job. Now it's Jen Psaki. She's going off to cable news land soon. But the sequencing of events, the way that's gone down, has raised some ethical eyebrows. And I wonder what Ari thinks of that. We will get to all of those topics and more over the course of today's program. We begin, though, with the news that broke yesterday that we had 
here on the show. We brought you the Fox News alert. We can bring it to you again if you want. Why not? Let's play it. And there it is. A federal judge in Florida struck down the Biden administration's mask mandate on public transportation, including trains, in airports, on airplanes. That broke basically while we were on the air yesterday. But there was that period of time, a few hours, where people weren't quite sure, is this for real? It's one judge. Does this apply nationally? Is there a next step here? Is there going to be some sort of an appeal? What's going to happen? Does it take immediate effect? And you saw, I mean, truly a meltdown, especially within the realm of blue check marks on social media, progressives who live in an extremely thick bubble, who evidently have not spent a lot of time out in most places in America for the better part of the last year and a half. They were just mortified that people might have a decision for themselves about whether or not to wear a mask flying on an airplane. And they were tweeting angrily at airlines, talking about boycotts. I'm never going to fly you again. I'm going to your competitor. And then a competitor would announce a few minutes later, we're also going to make it mask optional. And they would move on to the next person like it's going to be. They're running out of airlines that they can possibly travel on based on this, you know, just outraged circuit of boycott rage. And some of the attacks were very personal against the judge herself who made this decision, who rendered this ruling. This is a federal judge down in the state of Florida. As I mentioned, she's roughly my age. I think she's 35 or 36. She was appointed by President Trump, confirmed in 2020. In her, at the time, early mid-30s, she was a former clerk to Justice Thomas. And people were like, oh, look at this young woman. Like, okay, do you have a problem? Oh, she was a Federalist Society person. Okay. That, to me, that's a plus. Might not be for you, but that's not really an argument against the actual reasoning behind her decision. Oh, she's a Clarence Thomas person. She's a Federalist Society person. She's a Trump appointee. She's only 35 Those are not really, last time I checked, constitutional arguments against any particular ruling or decision. But that wasn't the point. It was just sort of raging. Here's the photo of this young woman. I guess that sort of targeting and online harassment, that's fine. Right? You criticize left of center people in similar ways, and it's like extremely dangerous to our democracy. But when the target of your criticism is the right sort of person, well, then it's all fair game. The ends justify the means. So you had this high-volume unleashing of fury, but you also had a lot of people who were very, very relieved. Like, it's about time. The major CEOs of the airlines had written a letter, what, weeks ago now, effectively begging the Biden administration to lift the mandate. And then the Biden people went on and extended it for 15 more days until this judge finally intervened. And I think the fact that the administration did not immediately rush to the microphones and say that they're going to appeal and seek a stay instantly and all of that, they're sort of tipping their hand 
that they're happy to go along with this because it is a political loser for them to be seen as rushing out to try to reimpose masks on people, especially in airplanes where there's an air filtration system that has prevented any major outbreaks or, you know, hot spots or super spreaders on commercial airliners. I don't remember reading about any of them. And if there have been any, it's been extremely far apart, far and few between. It just hasn't really happened. One of the safest places you can be from the virus, evidently, even though you're packed in, is on an airplane because of that filtration system. Plus, there's people drinking and eating. I mean, it's it doesn't make any sense is the point. It's It's a discomfort thing for a lot of people and for young children it's worse. And many people have been waiting for the moment when the choice was left up to them. The airline industry was ready for it. A lot of people who work in that industry who've been forced to enforce, they've been sort of required by their employer under the overall sort of within the, the structure and uh, of the law and the enforcement structure on this. They've been the agents effectively deputized by the state enforcing this. And they've met with rudeness and resistance and all this stuff. And that's not right. They shouldn't have had to go through that. But a lot of them were long past the point where they were ready to not have to do that anymore for themselves or for anyone else. So while you had a certain sort of niche of elite anger over a decision that is, if anything, extremely belated and delayed, you had a different response among much of the traveling public. So a few people actually captured the moment on their smartphones and then put it on social media. Here's a pilot announcing to a plane filled with people before takeoff, hey, guess what? We don't have to require masks anymore. Listen to the response in Cut 21. April 18th, the Biden administration announced that the Transportation Security Administration will no longer enforce the federal mandate requiring masks in all U.S. airports and onboard aircraft. And in the video, the flight attendant takes her mask off and, like, pumps her fist in the air. She's so excited. You can hear the cheering from passengers. I know a lot of people on social were like, polling shows that people want masks on planes, and this is a disaster. Well, the cheering there might suggest that at least opinion might be mixed. Let's just say that. Then there's this one where a flight attendant actually got choked up, broke down a little bit in this announcement about how for the first time in two years at work, she does not have to wear a mask. This is a little bit tougher to hear, but listen carefully. Cut 22. This is another flight yesterday. If you'd like to continue wearing your mask, please feel free to do that. We do have extras if you would like one. First time in two years. (laughs) So you could hear her voice break there a little bit. For the first time in two years, you don't have to wear it. And cheering and whistling and whooping on the plane. I was on the train last night. Went straight from the radio studio, did... TV actually from the radio studio with Brett Bayer on the panel, went over to Union Station, and I knew by that point what the judge had ruled. We talked about it on the air. I had seen why it had sent a text. It was a tweet with a statement from Amtrak that they were not going to enforce a mask mandate based on this ruling. It was now going to be optional. So I just decided 
I'm not going to put a mask on my face at all for this entire process. I'm not going to wear one when I get into the train station. I'm not going to wear one as I'm approaching the train or sitting there on the train. And if someone tells me to put one on, like a conductor or something, because they've been very officious in the past, I would I had like ready on my phone a screenshot of the statement from Amtrak. I was ready to very politely push back and say, well, actually, I'm making a different choice for myself, and this is the reason why I'm allowed to do it. Never happened. Never needed to uh, whip out the phone for that purpose because they knew. The guy sitting next to me, and I've got a story about him later in the show, at the end of the show, turned out to be someone pretty prominent. Once the mask came off, I was like, oh, I know you. We had a very interesting conversation. We'll get to that later. But he was kind of like out of the side of his eyes, just sort of like looking over at me, not judgmental, like, why is your mask off? But take me with you. Can I also not wear a mask? Then I showed him the statement from Amtrak, and he was like, oh, so we don't have to do this. I said, correct, and off came the mask, big smile. About halfway through the train ride, the conductor or the engineer came on the PA system in the train and made the announcement, as of this evening, you no longer have to wear masks. It's optional. We still encourage mask wearing. And now this is also like the Acela Corridor, D.C., New York, the type of person who is probably still wearing 18 masks. So I'm sure there were some people silently with tears rolling down their cheeks, rolling atop the many masks and then down into their lap. But for many others, off came the masks immediately. So compliance went from seemingly 100% minus me to maybe half the train. Because a lot of people don't want to wear these things. Now, here's the last point that I'm going to make before I play you a few sound bites in the next segment. The president weighed in on this today. There are people treating this judge's decision and the outcome of this decision as if masks have been unilaterally banned in the United States of America. They're saying, what about the children? The children especially don't need masks and are especially safe from COVID. We know this based on the science. They refuse to believe it, which is why we have to keep fighting them. I need, I am never going to fly without a mask on again. Fine. Knock yourself out, maybe literally. That's your call. Like, ladies and gentlemen, you are now free to move about the cabin. And you are now free to continue wearing a mask if you want to wear one based on your personal comfort and risk factors. Thank you. That's what this means. No one is stopping people. If you have underlying conditions, if you're in a vulnerable population, no one is stopping you. In fact, I would applaud you. Get that protective N95 mask and wear it to your heart's content. It provides some added protection for you. And that is your choice to make based on what you know about yourself. And no one should judge anyone for wearing their mask indoors because you don't know someone's story. That is not the same thing as banning masks. This is now a choice people can make for themselves, for their children in particular. As someone who has two vaccines in my body, plus hybrid immunity from getting Delta, that wave, I have made the choice that I am not going to wear my cloth mask, which does basically nothing anyway, indoors. And that's a choice I can make for myself 
you can come to a different conclusion. That is known as freedom and personal responsibility. And I think those are things that we should embrace in the United States of America. And finally, we have the choice to do so, at least for now, on public transportation modes, whether it be trains, airplanes, etc. Is the White House going to really fight this? As I indicated earlier, I don't think so. The president had something to say about this. We'll get to that clip coming up. So much on the docket today on The Guy Benson Show. From New York, just underway. Please stay tuned. We will be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. So when the news broke yesterday, the White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki reacted to the judge striking down the mask mandate on public transportation by saying that it was a disappointing decision. President Biden earlier today was asked by a reporter if people should keep masking up on trains and planes and those types of settings. Here's his answer in the exchange. Cut 25. People continue to wear masks on planes. That's up to them. Would you like to appeal the ruling uh, or the ruling that the judge made striking down the mandate? I haven't spoken to the CDC yet. So that was an evasion on the second question. So not sure about the appeal. I don't think he wants to appeal. But on the question, should people keep wearing masks on airplanes? He said that's up to them. You know what? Let me say this clearly into the microphone. President Joe Biden is correct. President Joe Biden in that answer is correct. He said it's up to them. If you feel more comfortable for your whatever reason might be for your personal comfort or safety to wear a mask, you can do it. If you don't want to, you don't have to quote. It is up to them. That has been the correct answer, by the way, for quite some time. And by the way, his administration could have simply instituted that answer long ago or at least yesterday when this thing was supposed to expire anyhow. Instead, they extended it for two more weeks. They had a conservative judge knock it down. They don't really want to fight it because of the politics. But Republicans can still say the Democrats would love to put you back in masks. And it took a judge to overturn what the Democrats were doing. So they came to the right conclusion, at least Biden did. Very, very late in the process and doesn't even get to claim any credit for it, partially because, as usual, he's scared of his base. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Roe. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. 
Thanks for tuning in to the Guy Benson Show. We're in New York through the end of the week, which is exciting. We'll have more on that later on in today's program on the home stretch, our final segment. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast. So this was an interesting back and forth in the briefing room at the White House yesterday between our colleague Peter Ducey and Circleback, the White House press secretary. And he was wondering if there was maybe some sort of apology forthcoming. Why? Well, we talked about it last week on the show, Fox News learning that the agents, the Border Patrol agents who were involved in that so-called, quote-unquote, whipping incident in Texas back last September, they had been informed that they would not be charged, which is obviously the right call, as I said last week and said at the time and have said several times since, based on the actual video evidence. I won't rehash the whole thing. I'll simply say it started on left-wing Twitter. This argument, this accusation that they were whipping migrants, of course, they injected a racial component into the story, and it worked its way up the totem pole in sort of you know left-wing outrage all the way up to the president of the United States. It wormed its way to the very top, this smear that was clearly rebutted, in my view, by the actual video footage. So there were like screenshots taken. So look at these people whipping these migrants. This wasn't true. They were using not whips. They were using reins to control the horses. These were agents on horseback. But the whole story, the allegation took on a life of its own. And it culminated with this big contretemps, a lot of anger. And we'll remind you of some of that anger here in a second. But then, finally, six months later, they, I guess, very quietly decided they're not going to do anything, as they shouldn't, because nothing wrong occurred. There was no whipping. There was no crime. There was no misconduct. And they had promised a very speedy probe into this, a very speedy Swift investigation. It wasn't so swift. It wasn't so speedy because they were embarrassed because they all got way out over their skis, got it wrong, maligned these agents for no good reason. So they waited month after month after month with these people just twisting, twisting in the wind, waiting for a final decision. And I guess that decision has finally been communicated to them privately. And a few news organizations got wind of it recently and reported it. So given all of the opprobrium, given all of the condemnation heaped upon these agents for no good reason, would there be an apology? Given what the president and others said, very good question from Peter Ducey. Listen to the answers, the evasions here, classic press secretary stuff from Saki. Here it is in cut 12. We've been told that the mounted Border Patrol officers the president accused of whipping migrants have been notified they will not face criminal charges. So when is the president going to apologize to them? Uh, There is a process and an investigation that's gone through the Department of Homeland Security. I don't have any update on that. 
the president said that they were whipping people, which would be a criminal offense, and they've been told they're not going to be criminally and charged. And there was an so investigation into that, and I'll let the Department of Homeland Security announce any conclusion of that investigation. You accuse these officers of brutal and inappropriate measures now that they've been told they will not be criminally charged. Will you apologize? And, Peter, there was an investigation into their behavior. So that investigation is playing out. Whenever it's going to be announced, the Department of Homeland Security will announce that, and well, I'm just, sure we'll yeah. have a comment on it after yeah, so that. So we'll just we'll refer you to the Department of Homeland Security because, as I've told you, Peter, now three times, there's an investigation. And the implication here from Circleback is that it would be inappropriate, far be it from her, to weigh in as the White House press secretary on an investigation being conducted by a department within the executive branch. And therefore, she's just going to refer you over to that other department and that investigation, and that apparently is her whole answer. So it's inappropriate, it would seem, as Saki tells it, for the president to apologize for her, personally to apologize for what they said, because the investigation is the province of DHS, and when that investigation is over formally, then they will announce that. Now, here's my question. If that's the standard, we shouldn't comment. We can't comment. There's an investigation. This is DHS. This isn't us. Why did that standard not apply at all in September 2021 when this incident occurred? I played you a few of these clips last week. Let's go back into the Wayback Machine and listen to these flashbacks together again, starting with Saki herself. This is cut 13 last fall. Once he had a, uh, an opportunity to see the photos, see the video footage, as you saw him say in a statement last night and again this morning, he was horrified. Uh, he believes this does not represent who we are as a country and does not represent the positions of the Biden-Harris administration. So there's the president's spokeswoman talking about how horrified he was by the images. This is not who we are. This is not acceptable. Here is Biden promising on national television. It was played multiple times, this clip, over and over again on a loop. The president of the United States promising that the offending officers would pay for what they did. Cut 14. Of course, I take responsibility. I'm president, but it was horrible what to see, as you saw. To see people treated like they did, horses barely running them over, people being strapped, it's outrageous. I promise you, those people will pay. They will be an investigation underway now, and there will be consequences. They will pay. There will be consequences. It's unacceptable. It was horrible to see these people getting strapped. They were strapping them, meaning whipping them. That's what Biden said. And even mention the investigation, the investigation, by the way, that Saki is now hiding behind. Oh, she can't possibly comment because there's an investigation. Biden had already announced the result of that investigation, which was it was horrifying what happened. It's unacceptable. There will be consequences. And those people will pay. Talk about prejudging an investigation. And by the way, prejudging it wrong. He got it wrong. At that time, there was no let's wait and see what the facts show. And if there is a need for consequences, we will make sure that that occurs. No, that is not what Biden said last September. He said it was horrible. These people were getting whipped. 
It can't happen, and the people doing the whipping will pay. There will be consequences. A prejudged conclusion. Here's the vice president. Cut 15. I've been very clear about the images that you and I both saw of those law enforcement officials on horses. I, I, I was outraged by it. I, it was horrible and, um, and, and deeply troubling. There's been now an investigation that is being conducted, which I fully support, and there needs to be consequence and accountability. Consequence, accountability, outrage, deeply troubling. She mentions that investigation almost like it's a formality. They all saw what they saw. And weirdly, after the investigation took forever and simply reviewed what actually happened, which is not what they're describing, well, the White House doesn't really have much of an interest these days in having anything to say about any of it. Here's one more, Secretary Mayorkas, Alejandro Mayorkas, the DHS secretary, who I will remind you at first— When this thing bubbled up, he was right. He and another Border Patrol official said that's not what happened. These were rains. They actually corrected the record in real time. But overnight, everyone fell into line. It was the position of the Biden administration that they were angry because the base was angry. The base was angry. The journo class was all lathered up into a frenzy. This was an opportunity to talk about the border crisis in a way that made them feel good, namely to attack law enforcement. That's sort of where the base is most comfortable. And so the telling of the truth accidentally by Mayorkas, that could not stand. So he had to reverse course and repeat the party line, and he did in cut 16. Uh, One cannot weaponize a horse uh, to aggressively attack a child. That is unacceptable. That is not what our policies and our training require. Please understand, let me be quite clear. Um, That is not acceptable. We will not tolerate mistreatment. And we will address it with full force based on the facts that we learn. Not tolerable. We're going to address it with full force. They're attacking these children. They've weaponized horses. So that was the new tone from Mayorkas, like hours after he had actually let the truth slip through. Got past the goalie on that one. So he's like, oops, sorry, back in line. Why do I play all those clips again? Just to drive home the point. When the video and really just the the snippets and images emerged at the very highest levels of the United States government and the Biden-Harris administration, from the president to the vice president to the Department of Homeland Security secretary to the spokeswoman at the White House, they were all tripping over each other to intone about the horror of what they had witnessed and to promise punishment consequences for the people who were responsible for this attack and the whipping, and they were going to pay. There was no sense of let's wait and see, let's follow the facts. The facts had already been determined. The narrative, capital N, was set, and they were shouting it from the rooftops. And now here we are. The story has finally completely fallen apart. The administration, tail between their legs, has no choice at this point but to not charge these people because they didn't commit crimes. They were following protocol is what we've heard from Border Patrol officials who are familiar with those protocols and the training. They were not whipping people. They were using reins to control the horses. 
that has all come to a head with a lack of consequences because there shouldn't be punishments if you didn't do anything wrong. If you didn't whip people, then you shouldn't be accused of whipping or punished for whipping. And they finally, I guess, very quietly embarrassed, determined that they got it wrong. And now, all of a sudden, finally today, Jen Psaki and that whole crew over there at the White House, they have nothing to say. Because the story goes, that would not be appropriate. There's an investigation after all, and it hasn't been formally closed, I guess. And so when DHS does that, you know, perhaps you can get back to us. There was no compunction whatsoever, no hesitancy, no delay. When there was a political moment for the president and the vice president and all these other people to go out there and just seethe and emote and perform because the pro-illegal immigration activists were big mad and they are always i talked about this earlier in the hour always afraid of their base and losing that base so they had to come out and they had to put on a show and if that meant sliming and slandering border patrol agents then they were willing to do it and they did it eagerly and repeatedly in public on camera and then when the vindication finally arrives for the agents Then they're hiding behind the technicalities of not wanting to comment on an investigation from another department that hasn't formally or officially been closed yet. Absolute BS. There was not a shred of hesitation about weighing in in a very prejudicial way publicly at the time when that was the politically expedient or necessary thing for them to do. Now that the accountability might actually fall on them for getting it wrong, then circle back is just, ooh, bashful. She's a little little blush. Ooh, don't ask me that. That's DHS. That's an investigation, Peter. They didn't care about any of the propriety of commenting or weighing in on an, an, uh, you know, an active investigation back then. Oh, but now there's real sticklers. Far be it from us. We have to dot that I and cross the T, and we have to wait until you must understand, Peter, with the it's so transparent. They were involved. This is an old Rush Limbaugh ism. They were part of the drive by in September of 2021. They had their automatic weapons just firing at these guys because that's what the politics required in their minds at the time. Just, you know, load up the bazooka and fire it. And here we are months later, and they're like, oh, I'm sorry. Our our legally acquired handgun is locked in a safe where it belongs. And this is how, this is what we must do because we're responsible. It's just galling. But it's also so transparent they're not fooling anyone. Certainly not me and certainly not you. Which is why I wanted to play that exchange. Good for Peter Ducey. For asking that question and following up twice because he brought the receipts. Not exactly the behavior of a stupid SOB, is it? That's a reporter doing his job and Saki had nowhere to go. Backed into a corner by their own standards, by their own conduct, their own behavior. And all she's doing is hiding. Hiding behind these technicalities that they did not give a rat's ass about last September. I don't know what recourse there is for the agents who were smeared in all of this, but I hope there's something. I hope that there is, to use their word, accountability 
and consequence because there needs to be. Quick break right back on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. Back here on The Guy Benson Show. So I saw this from a Wall Street Journal reporter yesterday. I want to share this with you. According to the Labor Department, so this is the federal Biden Labor Department, 13 states have now recovered all of the jobs that were lost in those states when the pandemic first hit. Because, of course, the economy got shut down. Tons of jobs disappeared. And as we were building back, coming back from that, bouncing back, of course, a lot of those jobs would return. And the Biden folks want the credit for that. Look at all these jobs we've created. The steepest job growth ever. Well, it's because they're building from an artificially low baseline when the economy got completely shut down in the middle of a pandemic. That's why. So we've been charting this metric for a while, the states that have come back the fastest. Here are the 13 states that have gained all of the jobs back, and several of them are now, like, in the black, right? They've now got a surplus of jobs. They've grown even further. See if you can spot a trend among these 13. Arizona, Arkansas... Colorado, Florida, Georgia, Idaho, Indiana, Montana, North Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, and Utah. A lot of deep red territory in that list. Overwhelmingly so, actually. Texas has gained the most jobs since February 2020, followed by Florida. Oh, I'm sure it's just a coincidence. If you look at the numbers, the 21 states with the best unemployment rates, the lowest unemployment rates, 18 of them are governed by Republicans. In the job recovery, 12 of the top 15 states are led by Republicans. I'm sure it's just a coincidence. The Democrats want credit for this growth. They've demonized the states and the leaders responsible for that growth that have been leading the charge by doing the opposite of Biden's policies. Don't let Biden steal that credit. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour of the Guy Benson Show live from New York. For the rest of the week, I'm up here for Gutfeld tonight, Kennedy the next couple nights. We are very busy on the TV side, but that does not stop us from doing our day job, which is the radio show that you all know and love. Please tell your friends. Let's keep growing together. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free every day. We air between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern time. GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert as we begin the middle hour. The Dow with a big day today, soaring to a close up 499 points, ending at 34,911. So a good day down on Wall Street a few blocks from here. Now, I give the time slot regularly and also the website, GuyBensonShow.com, for the free podcast. But the time slot 3 to 6 comes after a crucial radio time slot, the noon to 3, Rush Limbaugh, time Mm. and here at fox news radio the man who you just briefly heard there just grunt uh who occupies the seat during those crucial hours before us here on many of these same stations 
is Jimmy Fallon, host of Fox Across America, Fox News Radio, noon to 3 Eastern, and Jimmy. Hey, hey. Welcome to the studio here. It's, it's nice to spend time with your opening act, isn't it? It is very nice. You invited me into the green room. Because you means got, a lot. Your studio steps away from here. Yes. I'm in the Kilmeade mm-hmm. studio. Of course. Uh, that they sort of put my name up in briefly while I'm here. But we know who <laughs> – there's a there's a bronze bust of the man no, no, in this <laughs> studio. So this is, this is not my studio, just to be clear. So this is like someone's parents went away and we're throwing a party. Right, just like don't if, tell them. Yeah, if we see Kilmeade turn the corner, I'm actually running. Like, I'm leaving. <laughs> no, under the desk. Yeah, no, he's a powerful man. He can, You'll he see be... just like sort of hands and knees crawl out <laughs> while he's yelling at me, what's going on here? <laughs> Nothing. Did you have a radio show while I was gone? No, no. no. I don't know what you're talking about. Is that I a course Chris, light? Christine, I no. thought we cleaned up. <laughs> everything Everything looks too clean, actually. Speaking of, Jimmy, mm. I have to ask you, because when you get on the radio floor here at the Fox News World Headquarters, uh, they've got the screens everywhere, and if you're in studio, you know, they've got cameras yeah. and lights. I believe that you were wearing... A shirt and tie earlier. And oh. Here you are with like the uh, like Miami Vice look here. With the, uh... <laughs> well, let me just jump in and be clear. I am not uh, Miami Vice. I'm not. I'm, I'm in a spinoff called Jacksonville Vice. Yeah, we're not quite good looking enough for Miami. They're a little like, bit less exciting. Yeah, yeah, I'm with Ron Johnson, not Don. They sent me down the road <laughs> with Ron Johnson. You and Ron are the yeah. uh, the like the cop buddies. Yeah, instead of Crockett and Tubbs, it's like Crockett and Chubbs, and that's me <laughs> uh, down the road. No, what happened is I was in my Cavuto gear. I switched for the show. Because on the off chance, you're getting ready to do Gutfeld and Kennedy and all this wonderful stuff. Uh, I didn't want to show up and outdress the host, meaning be overdressed. Oh, well, I'm wearing a, good radio I swag. got a baseball cap. No, I love it. Today. That's a good look. That's what yeah. you should be doing the radio in. And I, I, uh-huh. I will not be wearing the hat on the television this evening because <laughs> Greg, Greg would probably you have a lot to say. He would mock me relentlessly. Well, here's the thing. He likes most of my jackets deep down. He's just mad because they don't come in kid sizes. If they did, wow. you know, he could borrow some of them. Oh, wow. I'd say that to him. He knows that. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> hey, like, pat him on the head and send him on his little way. <laughs> that's a lot of tough love at Fox. This, is, this is one of your less offensive jackets that you're currently wearing. I know this is a scintillating conversation on the radio but, but where you can't know. see it. Well, this is the thing. But some of your jackets you can actually hear on the radio. <laughs> well, most of my wardrobe at night is an actual cry for help. You know what I mean? The way it started at Fox, for real, is when they first started bringing me in, you know, I had a little bit of a background in stand-up and driving a cab, and I dressed loud to really, to distract from my glaring lack of intellect. Like, there'd be two minutes talking about my jacket, one moment where I'd make a sports metaphor, and then I'd be done. It's a three-minute hit. They'd be like, this guy's, this guy's got some. Wow. There's a lot there's of smoke and mirrors. Here. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors. And basically, over the course of time, it's, it's the you're, ratio you're has changed. Us, you're telling us it worked. Straight up. No, and then, but, but now it's like two minutes and 30 seconds of substance, 30 seconds of my jacket. It used to be two and a half jacket, 30 substance. This is, this is progress. Thank you. This is real progress. <laughs> Don't hey. sleep on the community college kids. Come on. So we we got a couple topics to get to with you here today. I want to start with this one. Have you seen the story? And I don't want to laugh because it's actually like fairly disturbing. Mm-hmm. John Hinckley Jr., the man who shot Ronald Reagan mm. and tried to assassinate him, I believe shot three other people huh? uh, in that same incident. Reagan almost died. He is on the precipice of an unconditional release from court supervision. Uh-huh. And he is going on tour. He's a musician. He's going to be performing, and his first show is already sold out in Brooklyn. <laughs> and they're so like the club is promoting special guests and all this stuff. <laughs> and I read there was a story about it in Washingtonian. And my favorite element of the story, because it's generally pretty horrifying. My view is sort of old fashioned. If you try to kill a president. You're done. There's no more freedom to be had. Time was. It like, was really hard to book a concert date 
as yeah. a presidential would be assassin. Yeah, yeah, I think like that's that should be the end. But he he's sort of waxing nostalgic about his life and now his rebirth as this artist and going out on tour. He's like, well, people just think of me as the guy who shot Reagan. I'm like, yeah. Yes. That is who you are. You know, no one ever talks about what a handball player Osama bin Laden was. You know, for some reason. They never gets the credit for being as good as he was. The lateral movement alone. Uh, there's a part of me that isn't surprised because of all the people who, like, write love letters to prison inmates. Mm-hmm. But then there's this other part of me that is so blown away by the idea he could be a draw. Like, I'm, I'm flat out wondering if there was, like, well, a, a— Not even that he's a draw, that he's— Going to be out of Period. prison at all. But it's even out, let alone selling out in Brooklyn, which, you know, if you know most people hanging out in Brooklyn, it doesn't really surprise you. But I was like, I was half wondering, like, wh- is Guns N' Roses on tour? Like, is there a band with, like, guns in their name that somehow he linked to is all I could think of? Because why would you go to this? And can you, do you really think there's a world where he can sing? Like, was he on a, a reality show called America's Got Issues or something. I, I don't think the people necessarily care if he's good. They care that he shot Reagan and he's out and they're going to go see him. Like that's, that, <laughs> that's these, the appeal. Who are these people in Brooklyn that are still that mad at Reagan? You know what I'm saying? Long memories. <laughs> Long memories with these it's weirdos. Like, uh... I, here's my question. Is Hinckley Jr. going to get up on stage every single show consumed with a desperate, overwhelming hope as he searches the faces in the crowd that Jodie Foster is there. Because <laughs> if, if I'm not mistaken, yes, he was that's, to, yeah. that's why he shot Reagan in the first place, to impress her. It's so crazy. And it never works. To anybody out there thinking about shooting some, it never works. It I mean, never impresses the girl? No, the guy who shot John Lennon, it didn't work out. No, it never works. You don't, you don't wind up getting a girl. And uh, it is. It's so, it's so weird. But it really speaks to where we are as a country that, you know, they always say there's no such thing as bad publicity. There really is more so than ever, though, and I think it has to do with the age of true crime. There is almost some type of, I guess, there's like an allure to criminals now in a way there never was. Like they were out there, we'd we'd cover them. Well, like mafia movies have been popular, yeah. for, but that's like a little different. Like, but we didn't go crime. to an evening with John Gotti. Right, you know what I mean? Right. When they right. hold up the applause sign, you better clap. Yeah, clap loud. <laughs> you can have a big Keep problem. Clapping. It's here. like Kim Jong Un style. <laughs> Don't stop. Don't stop clapping until Mr. Gotti says it's okay. But yeah, like you're backstage. Let's say you're the next act, and there's like you can hear the crowd, the packed house, and cheering. It's like. Whoa, like, they love you, man. Like, where'd you get your big star? He's like, oh, well, I shot a president. <laughs> My big break. He was an overnight success. Yeah. Yeah, when, when they say David Hinckley killed, it's, it's a different metaphor, although he didn't in real life, thank God. I will say about the attempted assassination of Reagan by John Hinckley Jr. back in 1981, there's a book, the definitive book about it is called Rawhide Down. Rawhide was, was the Secret code, Service yeah. code name. Rawhide Down, it's written by a, gal, a guy named Del Quentin Wilbur. He's a fellow Northwestern alum, years ahead of me. Always a plug. He was a, he was a writer at Washington Post. I think he's at the L.A. Times now. And he just contacted me. He said, hey, if you're interested in the book, I'll send you a copy. Whoa. I could not put it down. I had no idea how close he was, th- to, dying. He was to dying. I mean, and there was like some 30-year-old surgeon who was just on shift that day. And they're like, ah, oh, the president's dying in that room. Go. <laughs> and like the, the stories, I mean, he got. He now got he a, would be dead because the kid, the first thing he would do is take a selfie with the president. He's like, look what I'm doing. Like, big gig. I don't feel safe being in this room with such a hater. <laughs> Republican. Now you'd have a how it's starting, how it's going montage. Oh. How, how it started. Here's me voting for Mondale. How it's going. In that me- instance, God. Meanwhile, I saw you. Uh, you have a Twitter feed. Oh boy! And I did follow uh, your Twitter feed. What's the What's the Twitter name there? Uh, it is at Jimmy Fela F A I L L A. 
You can't spell phala without fail. Can't do it. There you go. And I've never had that before. That's that's unique. Really? <laughs> no. I'm I was going to say, like, do you, have a, do you have a sister named Girl? Um, <laughs> producer Christine has a new Twitter account. I don't know if you're aware of this. Ooh. At CookiesJar1988. <laughs> so that's real. You can look it up. But I'm letting you plug the Twitter because this was a an interesting viral tweet that you had on mm. the uh, iPhone pregnant oh. man emoji. Thank you. Yeah, so give us give us the the, the, the back tweet. story is is yesterday uh the Apple iPhone pregnant man emoji went into full circulation mm-hmm. and the tweet was it's available in every color meaning people of every ethnicity can now tell the world they failed biology. There you go. And that's the point. And, and, go ahead, I'm sorry. And I was going to say like I get it. This is my issue when it comes to trans related stuff. I have no problem being nice and calling people the pronouns that they prefer. I do my best, do unto others, all of that. Yeah. I recognize there are people who identify as men mm. who were born biologically female who can, in fact, get pregnant because they have all of the yeah. inner workings to do so and uh-huh. be pregnant people, and they may not want to be called pregnant women. Fine. Uh-huh. It's like seven of them. And I feel like <laughs> we, we don't need to change our entire vocabulary and yes. change the basic clear meaning of words. Mm-hmm. And this is now just the appropriately stupid emoji version yes. of this whole phenomenon. And again, I'm not going to like pound the table furious about it, but it's mm-hmm. like what it's a- what is the audience for this except for a a narrow band of very angry activist people. Well, that's exactly who they're catering to, though. That's why I'm surprised they're showing their cards, because it, it is an extreme interpretation of wokeism. You know, most reasonable people would never in a million years sign off on the idea that we're agreeing to the fact that biological men get pregnant, because they don't. Um, but they've taken it there, wow. and that's who they're kind of... I know. Wow. Who brought this hate, guy in here? Hate speech. Yeah, this guy. Dox this guy. Somebody dox this guy. <laughs> they'd be so depressed. They'd come over. They'd be like, really? No, it's fine. But that's the big part of this. Is like, Taylor Lorenz would be like, you know what? Pass. Yeah, we're going to get out of here. It doesn't we'll, seem We'll get safe. to that later here, yeah. uh, coming up in this hour with Joe Concha, but please continue. I love it. But yeah, the point is, if you're driving by someone's house, right, and they have a stork on the front lawn that says, it's a boy, they're talking about the child, not the mom. Okay, and we've always known that to be the case. But here we are like, no, this is a new thing. No, it's not a new thing. And that's what I think is so silly. And there's some people like taking umbrage that parents would even put up the stork Uh that says it's a boy because who are you to tell anyone what they are? It's like now you got that going on. But this is where I love it. So thank you. The fact that gender has become this controversial, though, it is eliminating gender reveal parties which I think is great for all of us because nobody wants to go to your gender reveal party, number one. Nine times out of ten, the people who show up are like forest rangers because you lit the place on fire mm-hmm. shooting an errant arrow, which is ridiculous. But I think if like, people really wanted to make this fun, uh, you wait five years. You don't have a gender reveal. You have a report card reveal. That people would go to. You know what I'm saying? Three Ds and an F, it's a stripper. You know, you'd go yeah. to that. Wow. You know, different, different like, thing. So, so your approach to parenting mm. – is let's wait until they're fully sentient and have memory yeah. and then shame them publicly. Well, what if they get the good grades, though? They, he might have gotten Jenny Fahler's genes. By the way, my son Lincoln, I'm not even kidding, is somehow on the honor society. I'm trying so hard to find the parents of the kid he copied off of and give them something, but we haven't been able to track them down. They're just accusing your kid of cheating. Here. Flat out. Yeah. Flat out. I mean, and, the, come on. I didn't go to Northwestern. I, I bet on Northwestern a few times. I'm didn't sorry. Work. Yeah, it didn't work out yeah, for the that's best. Usually, I never bet on Northwestern. <laughs> I, root, I root hard, go Cats, but n- never bet. Never bet on the Cats. But, yeah, I can see, like, he's like, you know, Dad, I'm an honor society. You're like, 
who? What? <laughs> the what? Like, what is this concept? The honor system? <laughs> what do you do here? Who do you owe money to? I'll pay him. Okay, last topic here with Jimmy Fallon. The giant plush Easter bunny correcting and directing the president. Mm. Funny or sad? It is. It's right in the middle. But what it, it's evocative of is in the great movie, one of the all-time best comedies, The Naked Gun. They're trying to protect the Queen of England from a potential assassin, and they make Frank Drebin, the cop, dress as the umpire and be undercover to mm. keep steer, steer people clear of the Queen. We now have a Frank Drebin moment on the front lawn of the White House where they've put a White House uh, press flak, I believe she's in the Department of Messaging, in a costume, picking, pick-sixing the president if he goes to talk to the, po- to, to the regular people, which Ooh, is kind of psychotic no, and sad. Oh, no. He got intercepted by the Easter Bunny. But you don't think all And then she's like, she cuts him off. He's trying to, he's asked a question about Afghanistan or something. He starts talking. She shows up and then, like, (laughs) makes a big show. And then she's like, escorting him. She's like, no, right this way with these these big gestures with the giant eyes. And I watched the video and I did have this conflicted emotion of this is a sad thing. And also, like, the first lady telling him, wave. Wave. wave You gotta wave. You gotta wave. And, and, like, I don't wanna make fun of that because it is. A little disconcerting because he's the president and it's a sad thing. It is also undeniably hilarious oh, it's... that a giant rabbit is directing <laughs> the president of the United States you know what's away from questions. What's crazier is that he was just talking back to the rabbit. He didn't even fathom there was a person inside. He's just talking to a rabbit like you do, you know. How'd it's... you get in here? <laughs> I almost wonder, would... Would the presidency be doing better? Would he have better ratings if they just kept the rabbit around as the handler permanently? <laughs> just just keep it, it in – like it's sort of delightful. It is. And he has nowhere to go but up. The thank you. People like a fluffy, happy rabbit. No, I think you're onto something here. I think, I think you own this. I think you reach out to the White House. They he, love Fox. He could maybe get a polling bounce. <laughs> I'm not even the dad here, and I'm making the dad jokes. No, it worked though. I think you, I think you went with it. Uh, it was great. Uh, I just listened. The whole thing cracked me up. And uh, when I watch, when I watch this White House, the reason I think a lot of us who do feel bad laugh uproariously is to remind everybody who voted for him: we knew this. This isn't new. Like, we didn't spend the campaign thinking he was all there and now the joke's on us. During the campaign, he, Joe Biden was a guy who would quit talking in the middle of a sentence because he's finished. Like, oh, never mind. Guy was putting in the punt team on second down, guy. You're not supposed to do that. Any you other say, generation takes num- the keys. Point number two. Ah, uh, you know what? <laughs> I'm done here. Yeah. No, I um, loved it. His, his, his campaign was like a no-show construction job. It worked. We knew that. It did work. We knew that, though. Jimmy Fallon. The best. Fox Across America. Every weekday, noon to 3 on Fox News Radio. Jimmy, great to see you. There it is. I'm going back to Jacksonville to fight crime now. Good luck. (laughs) Thanks, buddy. Godspeed. (laughs) And we'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Joe Concha joining us coming up in the next segment. First, on a very serious note, we have not gotten to the war in Ukraine yet today, and there is a development. This was just published by Reuters minutes ago. Thousands of Russian troops, backed by artillery and rocket barrages, began a long-anticipated offensive in eastern Ukraine on Tuesday, prompting Western countries to pledge more arms and money to the Kyiv government. Ukrainian officials said their soldiers would withstand the assault calling it the Battle of the Donbass. But the Russians pressed 
in advance across almost the entire stretch of the Eastern Front and hours after its start seized a frontline city. So Russia has officially begun and unleashed this battle of the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine. This was their new game plan because they were stalling and dying as they tried to take and surround Kiev, and they were failing. So they pulled out of that area. They're still lobbing missiles. They're still bombing. For example, Lviv, we mentioned that yesterday, seven dead in that rocket attack. But the new offensive that they have reconstituted and redeployed, and here we go in eastern Ukraine, it is a big confrontation. And if the Russians lose this, then I think they lose the war. Let's pray that's the case. My prayers are with the people of Ukraine and the military of Ukraine as the Russians begin this new phase of their indefensible invasion. The Guy Benson Show continues after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Halfway through today's program on The Guy Benson Show, tune in tonight on Fox News Channel, 11 p.m. Eastern. I'm on the panel on Gutfeld, exclamation point. Looking forward to that. Here on the radio side, it's GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is always free. Joining us now is Joe Concha, Fox News contributor, columnist for The Hill, media critic extraordinaire. And Joe, it's good to have you here, and you are the perfect guest for this first topic I have been avoiding on this show talking about a woman called Taylor Lorenz. Mm -hmm. I really go out of my way to avoid thinking about her, responding to her work, but today it seems kind of unavoidable. So if you could just start with the very basics for this audience, who is Taylor Lorenz and what is Libs of TikTok? And let's proceed from there. Taylor Lorenz guy somehow is a reporter for the Washington Post. And I say somehow in terms of the title because she is an activist. And, and the reason why she is is because in the case that you're talking about that has finally pushed you over the edge. And me too. I've never tweeted about Taylor Lorenz in my life. It's kind of a section of Twitter that I've stayed away from uh, as far as criticism of her or support well, of it's her. It's toxic and she seems toxic and I just want to stay away. It's just sort of like a big flashing light, like neon sign. Stay away from this. And I've managed to do so until today because she's this Washington Post reporter, previously at the New York Times. Seems like she kind of bounces from place to place, alienating people and burning bridges. Now she's currently at the Post. We'll see how long that lasts. And she has this new story out today involving this other strange thing some people may have heard about or not, libs of TikTok. Yeah, so Lips of TikTok, all they do is take videos that exist already on social media, already on Twitter, and they repost them, and it's usually teachers acting crazy or saying crazy things that make parents like me just shudder, like, oh, my gosh, this is actually somebody teaching children. So that that's primarily what – I shouldn't even say they do. It's it's one woman, uh, apparently, that, that runs the account, and she was running it anonymously. So then Taylor Lorenz, who just a couple of weeks ago, Guy, on MSNBC, and this went viral, was crying, openly sobbing about how mean social media can be to somebody like her. Well, in fact, Joe, we have the clip. Let's listen. What, Cut what? 19. Here's Taylor Lorenz on MSNBC two weeks ago. You feel like any little piece of information that gets out on you will be used by the worst people on the Internet to destroy your life. And it's so isolating. And terrifying. It's horrifying. I'm 
so sorry. <laughs> it's overwhelming. It's really hard. It's so hard. And the thing is, not to make too much light of this, because it is true, people in the public realm have weirdos who come after them using the Internet. I've experienced this myself. It is unpleasant and uncomfortable. It is a little bit difficult to watch that clip or listen to that clip knowing what Taylor Lorenz's beat is, what her entire job is, which is being sort of through the journalism prism, an online harasser in a lot of ways, actually. Precisely. I mean, Taylor Lorenz, in this case, to find out who was behind this libs of TikTok account, actually went to relatives of the person behind it. And libs of TikTok even has a photo up of her that shows a picture of her being taken outside of a door. So she's why? knocking on a door of a relative yeah. of the woman who runs this TikTok account. By the way, Lorenz was wearing a mask outdoors just to add that little color to that image. And the thing is, Joe, just to jump in, yeah. this is not just a random assignment that is sort of off the beaten path for Taylor Lorenz. This is exactly what she has built her career on. I know she's been sort of evasive about how long she's been in the industry and what her actual age is. She was, I guess, leading people to believe she was much younger than she actually is. But her whole thing is I track online trends and spot social media trends and I report on them. But this has resulted in many cases repeatedly in her work of her going after people, unmasking people. The term that some people use is doxing folks. And this one seems to be almost like a caricature version of a Washington Post, Taylor Lorenz hit piece on just a Jewish woman living in New York City who finds crazy stuff that predominantly, as you point out, teachers post publicly into the public domain on TikTok, which is, I believe, a Chinese espionage app. And she then grabs those videos and reposts them and just says, here's what the libs are up to on TikTok. And it's sort of jokey in a lot of ways, and you're nut picking, and it's not representative of all liberals or all teachers. But these are pieces of content that people voluntarily put out in public on social media for the purpose of the content being seen. This woman finds them, simply reposts it. It's entirely within bounds in terms of like internet etiquette and terms of service and all of that. But because it makes leftists and liberals and certain like agenda-driven, indoctrination-minded teachers look bad, this entity, this account, Libs of TikTok, I guess, has been targeted and cited as an enemy of correct thinking. And so Taylor Lorenz made it her mission journalistically, quote unquote, to go and find this woman and reveal her identity. And I guess in the story, until finally The Washington Post cut this part out, in the story online, she linked to this woman's home address, yep. which is truly reckless and totally irresponsible, and that really is doxing, Joe. And there should be a lawsuit that would go along with that. I don't care if they deleted it. Oh, it didn't do any harm. If anybody ever did that to me, trust me, I, I don't call the lawyer very often. The, the, the call would go out. Like, all right, look, that's my home. I got kids that live here. But there are, nut, there are nuts out there that might actually take action. Well, if someone posted Taylor Loren's home address, she might rush right back over to MSNBC and, and sob on the air again Absolutely. about how mean and nasty the Internet is. When she is someone who actually makes the Internet meaner and nastier on a regular basis because it's her job. And she's like very, very 
self-righteous about it. And it seems like there's people in our industry, especially colleagues of hers sort of on the left side of things, who are actually scared of her because she seems to have something of a vindictive streak. And if she decides that you are one of the targets for elimination or targets for whatever you want to call it, accountability, you could be put in a very uncomfortable place. And so that's sort of what she does. And you made this point earlier, but it's worth noting. She's worked with a lot of these people, and that's maybe why she knows where the bodies are buried, so to speak, where the skeletons are. Listen to this resume, all right? And, and she she's listed as 37 years old. Okay. She says that she joined the New York Times. Well, it's reported she was joined, she joined the New York Times. Well, I think she's in her 40s. I, I think it's unclear how old she is. And it's okay. her, her own explanation of her age has bounced around a bit. Maybe yeah. some Internet sleuth can find that out and post the correct number and maybe that would also be tear-worthy <laughs> harassment. I don't know what her standards are, but go on. Interesting. All right, so New York Times, September 19th, 2019, she joins, right? Before that, she was with the Daily Mail, which has a massive uh, reading audience. Uh, and over there, she was the global head of social media. Then, and that's why I'm like, Taylor Lorenz, that, that sounds familiar. That's right. She worked at The Hill for a little bit uh, as a social uh, senior editor and director of emerging platforms. The reason why I wasn't definitive about that was because I work out of Jersey, and I don't really go to the Washington Bureau all that often, barely know any of the writers that are there. I wouldn't know their faces, let's put it that way. I know them by email, but I couldn't pick them out of a lineup. Then from there, she was with Business Insider. Before that, The Atlantic. Before that, The Daily Beast. So (laughs) that is a long resume for somebody in this business. It's amazing that she keeps getting hired, despite the fact that, as you said, uh, not the most likable person in the world. So now at this point— And for the record, I don't know her. I've never met her. I I only know her by her work product, which to me is— not something that I'm terribly interested in consuming. And then the way that she goes about it, I think, is far too often unseemly, unsavory, and, of course, hypocritical. I mean, we played the clip here of her. This is the thing. It's like I think the term is cry bully Yeah. where she acts as a bully, wrapping herself in the flag of journalism. And then whenever criticism comes in, she then wraps herself in the flag of victimhood. Precisely. And and she does this repeatedly. And, Joe, here's another thing that I think is interesting about this story. And I am not linking to the actual story itself. I've seen screenshots of it. She quotes a bunch of left-wing activists in the story. It's like this prototypical media hit piece. Ross Douthat at the New York Times is really torching her over this. It's sort of news voice where it sounds very news serious, just a straight news piece making a bunch of assertions where the conservatives are the bad guys and what they're doing is dangerous. And this is in the public interest to find who is running libs of TikTok. And several people have pointed out, oh, these newspapers didn't find it in the public interest to authenticate Hunter Biden's laptop. They just called it disinformation before the election. But who is the woman behind libs of TikTok? We have to get to the bottom of that to serve our community and and serve our readers and the common good or whatever. But – In the piece, they quote ACLU people and Media Matters, this organization, attacking this, saying how dangerous it is. They get a requisite shot in at Florida and Ron DeSantis because no hit piece would be complete these days without that. And what I find so interesting about the Media Matters furious scribbler giving her some quotes about this is that what Libs of TikTok does – and I – Just followed them today, actually, just on principle. I see their stuff sometimes. Sometimes it's amusing. Sometimes I think it's unfair. That doesn't matter. That's neither here nor there. Whether it's my cup of tea or not, I don't really care. What they do is 
They find content people put out willingly, and then they highlight it to make a side look bad. And that is quite literally, Joe Concha, correct me if I'm wrong, the business model of Media Matters, this group where they sit around all day and all night being paid to watch and read and listen to people like us, conservatives, waiting for any opportunity to create a controversy over something bad that is said or written so they can then feed that to liberal journalists to attack us for what we've done and then try to get us punished or fired or whatever. That is the entire purpose of Media Matters, which is quoted, one of their representatives, one of their, you know, Scriveners is quoted in this piece attacking libs of TikTok for simply using what Media Matters does, the entire model, against the wrong sort of people, i.e. leftists. That's am I irony. am I wrong here? <laughs> That's the irony here, right? They, if you use Media Matters as a source for anything, as an expert analyst in any way, shape, or form, then then you got serious problems. And you're right; that's all they do about Fox. They watch us all day when the, when the creepy Daily Beast guy isn't doing that. And what they'll do is they'll put up a screenshot of you and then paraphrase something you say. And when they don't put the video up, that's when you know that oh, well, if they actually play it, they'll see that whatever guy said or Joe said or somebody on Fox said made perfect sense. So it, it, it is it is the business model absolutely. But the thing is, they say. Oh, yeah, we, we are activists, but we are also doing a journalistic service, and this is about accountability, and we're just about transparency. Yeah. And look, I see her for three hours a day on this show, and I write at townhall.com, and I'm on Fox News, and I use words, thousands of them, every single day to make a living. And do I screw up sometimes? Yes, I try to avoid the screw-ups and minimize them, but there are people at all times being paid by leftists to be there to pounce whenever that screw up or just something that they want to invent out of thin air or bootstrap into a problem. Whenever that happens, they're there, they're waiting to then take publicly available comment and blow it up into some sort of controversy in order to punish and harass or criticize or hold accountable, as they would say, people that they think are toxic or irresponsible actors in the media environment. That's exactly what Libs of TikTok does on that specific platform, and now the woman who runs it has been identified, named, her address was published, and this is all done under the guise of the like Washington Post's long history of journalistic excellence. I mean, Wyatt, our assistant producer, was saying earlier today, this is the paper that published the Pentagon Papers and used Deep Throat to bring down the President of the United States with Bernstein. Woodward and Bernstein you know, in Watergate, and now you have Taylor Lorenz blowing the lid off of libs of TikTok. What what a journalistic trajectory for the Post. That's the thing, right? If this story was in the Daily Beast, it would still be wrong, right? But I don't think there would be the kind of outrage we're seeing because we expect that out of a publication like that. In this case, it's the Washington Post. You know, democracy dies in darkness, and you listed, obviously, their resume through the years. But their resume also includes, Guy, they have never, ever in their history endorsed a Republican presidential candidate. Ever. So think about that. That meant that you were behind Mondale or you were behind Dukakis or you were behind Kerry. You know, so that that's how far left the Washington Post is. So I'm, I'm tired of the New York Times being called. Well, they're, the they're libs of journalism, right? There's libs of, of TikTok and then there's libs of journalism. And that's the Washington Post and basically every other publication Taylor Lorenz has ever worked for. Let me call a timeout real quick. I want to shift to another media topic, making news in a way that they probably don't want to. 
That's next, right after the break. We pick this conversation up with Joe Concha on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on The Guy Benson Show with Joe Concha. And as I mentioned before the break, I do want to quickly shift to one more Libs of Media story, Joe Concha, before we part ways here. And it is CNN Plus. Some new developments today. It sounds like the marketing has been suspended. There's a huge marketing budget. It clearly didn't work. Uh, there's someone I just saw got laid off who's a higher up at CNN. They are reevaluating everything. The Axios headline is CNN Plus looks doomed. I'm not here to spike the football. There are good people who are going to lose their jobs, people that I know who went over there promised, you know, a good salary and, you know, all the institutional support of CNN who might be out of a job soon. All the big stars, quote unquote, are going to be just fine. But other people are going to hurt. And I, I just as a karma thing, I don't like to revel in media failures or people losing their jobs. I will just say it's like a parting gift to CNN from Jeff Zucker and that brain trust. On what planet was this business model ever deemed to be viable or even sort of in the ballpark to possibly be successful. I just don't understand how this was signed off on at multiple levels over multiple years when the inherent flaw, like, you know, they don't have a million people watching CNN regular in primetime, but they expect millions of people to pay money for this extra content that doesn't even include on-air CNN. I, I, I'm just sort of mystified by all of that. Oh, for forget about you know a million people in prime time. We're, we're talking six, seven hundred thousand. I mean, it, it, that's and just to put that in context, Fox gets about four times, five times that much. So that that's what six, seven hundred thousand means in terms of an audience. So yeah, so we're going to take people from that network and then make you pay for them when you're barely watching them for free. The the tweet I sent out is you know when this news hit is this is like a very expensive pitcher being pulled after. Failing to record one out in the first inning of a playoff game. In other words, this thing just came about like four weeks ago, and it's probably going to be gone or merged into something in a matter of weeks. And the thing is, it's not like, well, they did it on the cheap and they gave it a shot, right, Guy? I mean, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars put into this, and it's going to fail. And you're right. This is Jeff Zucker's parting shot. He destroyed CNN in terms of its integrity. He let anchors and analysts and pundits say and do whatever they wanted. The inmates ran the asylum because he thought that anything went viral was good for the for the network when its integrity was being destroyed in the process and now this this bet is one of the worst we have ever seen i think since probably new coke or the chevy chase show but either way uh this this is an embarrassment for cnn which has had nothing but embarrassments over the last six months when you consider chris cuomo jeff sucker and now cnn plus i guess people don't want five days a week of uh, brian stelter what can you say guy Joe Concha, Fox News contributor, columnist at The Hill and media analyst and, of course, media critic here on The Guy Benson Show. Always appreciate it, Joe. Thank you. All right, man. Have a good night. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up next. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson.
happy hour on the Guy Benson Show coming your way. Thank you so much for listening. I'm in New York City for the rest of the week, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Fox News Worldwide Headquarters. I'm here for TV. Gutfeld tonight, specifically 11 p.m. Eastern Time on Fox News Channel. Then a few other duties we'll be telling you about. But thrilled to be back in the Big Apple. Very happy to have you listening wherever you happen to be. GuyBensonShow.com for all the ways to listen live or to get that free podcast on demand each and every day. That's GuyBensonShow.com. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is delicious. I see it's featured in a new music video with Joe Jonas and Kygo. Kygo's a big fan, a big investor in Long Drink, and they are expanding nationally with some very exciting news forthcoming that we'll be telling you about very soon. It's a delicious beverage, but it's for those 21 and up only. So always a good reminder on that. Also always a good reminder to please drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. You can see where it's sold near you. You can order online. TheLongDrink.com. Joining me now is Ari Fleischer, former White House press secretary under President George W. Bush, a Fox News contributor and president of Fleischer Communications. I follow him on Twitter at Ari Fleischer. And Ari, it is great to have you back here on the show. Welcome back. Thank you, Guy. And I happen to see in an email from you and then some tweets about it and an interview that you've done already, you've got a new book coming out from HarperCollins. It is due out in early July, and the title is Suppression, Deception, Snobbery, and Bias, Why the Press Gets So Much Wrong and Just Doesn't Care, which sounds right up my alley, actually. We just had Joe Conch on last hour. I'm very excited to read this book. I think media criticism is essential. I think it is a target-rich environment these days. And I think it's particularly interesting coming from someone with your pedigree and your background, given your job, for example, at the White House, is you've watched this bias, sort of the arc of bias curve, I think, in an increasingly left-wing, unhinged, and unaccountable way in in such a way now, I would argue, that the bias and corruption of today is tangibly and appreciably worse than the bias that you experienced as President Bush's press secretary, which was bad enough. Do you agree with that, that it has gotten substantially worse? One hundred percent. You know, th- th- this was a really fun book to research, a fun book to write. And I love your phrase, the arc of bias. When I was press secretary, it was kind of just your main old – most reporters were liberal. They tried to pretend that they were neutral and down the middle. We all knew that they leaned left. But holy cow, as soon as Donald Trump became president, they became activists for a cause. They decided that Donald Trump's election was wrong, that Donald Trump is a threat to America, and they, the press, would save America from Donald Trump. And it showed up in their so-called reporting. And as much as I like reporters and made a career out of working with reporters, I'm blowing the whistle on reporters because it's not fair. It's not fair to President Trump. It's not fair to the American people. And it is a gross distortion of what journalism is supposed to be, and it's why most of the country, more than half the country, has lost trust in the press to tell the news fully, fairly, and accurately. They have allowed their bias to destroy their institution, and, and that's what my book gets into. Yeah, and they kind of justified as saying, well, it's not bias. Truth has a bias, and we must speak that truth to power. Like, they they get really higher and higher up on this high horse that they've created. And yes, they were particularly deranged about Trump. They kind of loved him, and they definitely miss him for business reasons. But they love to hate him, no question about that. 
they've also weirdly been kind of like transferring that loathing onto other people, whether it's Fox News, whether it's Governor Ron DeSantis or Governor Greg Abbott, you name it. There is this gaping hole in their soul right now with Donald Trump sort of off to the side, not on Twitter, not giving interviews all the time, not doing press gaggles. And I guess the new business model that they pursued, which was a resistance business model, they had done that with Republicans to some extent for many decades. That's not new. But they do seem to be really casting about to continue at this higher decibel craziness with targets mm-hmm. now who are not Donald Trump, but they're sort of addicted to the model, even though it's failing them. It's failing the institution. In a lot of cases, it's failing financially for these journalism companies. And yet, it's in your subtitle, they just don't care, it seems. They had too much fun. They liked it, and it came naturally, which is another part of the problem. They wanted to be activists. They wanted to save America from the menace of Trump. They wanted to give their opinions on the air, and especially at places like CNN and the New York Times. The top editors wanted opinions to be masqueraded as news. And I have example after example. Actually, I have a chapter about CNN in the book. I have a chapter about the New York Times in the book. And the, the fundamental person <laughs> did you go? Did you go outlet to outlet decided, in each chapter? Uh, you, that's sort of a fun way to I, do it. I did spend too much time watching CNN. It was very painful. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but you know, when you watch Jim Acosta, when you watch John Harwood of CNN, you'll see how much their quote-unquote daytime reporting was them giving their opinion, their anti-Republican, anti-Trump screed on the air. And the only reason they could do it was because management wanted them to do it. And, of course, it's helped lead to CNN's demise. Nobody watches them anymore except for that liberal partisan base. But the other thing that really struck me, guys, I went through this, and it's backed up with survey research. Reporters have increasingly become a group of college-educated Democratic voters whose stories appeal mostly to fellow college-educated Democratic voters. They have lost the audience. They've lost the American people. Only a small niche of people say that the only group in America that says the press gets them, understands what they go through, are college-educated Democrats. Democrats with a high school degree say that the press doesn't understand their life. Independents, whether they have a high school degree or college degree, say the press doesn't get them, and so so with all Republicans. They're down to their base. They are college-educated Democrats who write for college-educated Democrats. That's the press today. Yeah, and I think that's a good insight. Another one that I think about from time to time, just bounce this off of you, and I can't wait to read the book and have you back on when it comes out in July, but – I just want to see and run this up the flagpole, see what you think of it. It strikes me as back in, let's say, the 80s and 90s, early 2000s, you had most journalists were kind of just mainstream Democrats, and they didn't vote for Republicans. They didn't really like or trust Republicans, but they understood there was some obligation to sort of be even-handed, even though when they were in the voting booth, they were pulling the lever for Dems. Their friends are all socially liberal. They talk about that stuff at dinner parties. That's kind of the way things were. The way things are now especially with an up-and-coming crop and generation of journalists, they are not merely left-of-center sort of mainstream liberal Democrats. They are the woke left-wing base of the Democratic Party. And when they are holding Democrats accountable, often it is from the left. So, of course, they're going after Republicans because Republicans are like the ultimate evil. They don't know many Republicans. They don't understand many Republicans. They are the other, and they are treated that way in a lot of the coverage. And then when there is 
turning of the screws on elected Democrats. It's because those Democrats are not fulfilling the hardest core progressive policy goals of the activist class of which these journalists kind of consider themselves a part, even though they wouldn't quite cop to that publicly. Does that sound right to you? No, you're exactly right about that, too. And you see it in journalism schools all the time. Uh, My first chapter is called Original Sin, and it gets into who becomes a journalist in the first place. And increasingly, it's people who believe that the purpose of journalism is to move the needle, to make change. So which direction are they trying to move the needle in? I assure you, it's not to the right. Mm -hmm. It's not to capitalism. It's not to free markets. It's not to libertarianism. It's to the liberal activist left, which is another reason why the modern technology of journalism, Twitter, and the reward of becoming a uh, contributor on MSNBC or CNN if you're a print journalist – All of this has reinforced every liberal weakness in journalism because they get rewarded for bad behavior. Yeah, the incentives are terrible. Some resistance reporters. And and that's why they were so unfair to President Trump. So, but you know, it goes beyond politics, it's cultural. Why else would they have called Kyle Rittenhouse, who we now know was found not guilty of defending himself in in, uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin? They called him a white supremacist from the start. Nicholas Sandman, the young man from Covington Catholic on the steps of Lincoln Memorial. They called him a thug from the start. You know, they right away go to society's divisions and instantly attach labels that make conservatives on the right look bad, look small, look mean, look bigoted, and make heroes of those on the left. And they do it time after time with a knee-jerk reaction. And I blow the whistle on them. And what I do, Guy, and this is why it was so much fun, I hang reporters with their own words. I just go back and I quote their reporting. And I show instance after instance, time after time, how at CNN, the New York Times, you name it, how they frame stories from a left point of view, aren't fair to the right, and are, are, are so biased that we know they suppress news if it's supportive of the right, and they deceive readers and viewers with how many different stories had to get retracted that were aired to please the left or to go after Trump. Well, and Ari— the problem why people don't think journalists are accurate. And you know that the headline out of this interview is going to be, Ari Fleischer says he will hang journalists. This is dangerous, <laughs> eliminationist rhetoric. Like, that's sort of the game that they play. All right, let's talk about a few things in the news right now related to this stuff. There's been a freak out about the RNC pulling out of the commission on presidential debates, which is not the same thing as saying the Republicans will no longer agree to presidential debates. The commission is the institution that has set these things up for years. The RNC says it's not doing its job. It's not impartial anymore. And we've seen a lot of people very upset about that and and almost framing it as as if there will no longer be presidential debates in upcoming cycles. What do you think of this move from the RNC? What would be, in your mind, a, a healthier way of setting up these debates every four years? Yeah, this this was overdue. The, the debate commission and the journalists who host these debates have become the Praetorian Guard of the old school establishment media, and that's just not America anymore. And what really needs to happen is the two campaigns should go at it and organize and, and conduct the, um, the, the negotiations and sponsor debates, which is what they'll do. For heaven's sake, that's what both parties do in their primaries. There's no presidential commission in charge of the Republican primary debates, of which there were about a dozen last cycle. The Democrats had more than a dozen debates last cycle that they agreed to among themselves. So it it can be done. It will be done, and it should be done by direct negotiation. And this will help to make sure that the the playing field is level. Mm -hmm. Because in the past number of presidential debates, the questions asked, the moderators involved, 
the way that they followed up and criticized one candidate and turned a blind eye to another, it was all the left-wing moderators. So yeah, this is this is welcome. I'm glad they're doing it. It's part of what you know in my book when I talk about just the institutional inherent background to the left of these reporters. This is a recognition of it in real life. No, they shouldn't be involved. You invoked an example of someone in journalism striving to become and then getting signed as, for example, a contributor at MSNBC or CNN, one of the left-leaning or left-wing networks, someone who is apparently on the brink of joining MSNBC as a commentator and perhaps a host on one of their platforms, is Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary. And I guess she was having these negotiations with NBC or MSNBC while she was actively press secretary. That seemed to even rankle some of the NBC reporters in the briefing room who were asking awkward questions about it. And I guess we're just kind of waiting right now to see when she leaves the White House and when she picks up her torch as, you know, a commentator out there. You've made the jump as well, obviously. You were press secretary under Bush. You now work at Fox News, among other places. In your view, what are the ethics of how to make that transition? And is there a credibility problem when someone is like rumored to be under contract or have a negotiation complete with a news organization while fielding questions from that organization on behalf of the president? Yeah, and in my instance, um, in my first year after leaving the White House, I, I went around giving speeches and I started to write a book. I later opened up a PR company. So I worked for myself. I didn't go and work for anybody. The way the ethics rules work, and they work the same way then as they do now, is you're allowed to have conversations with people, but you can't conclude the conversations. It's kind of an awkward construct. You're, you're allowed to drive down the highway, but you're not allowed to reach your destination. The problem with Jen and the problem with anybody who has a job lined up before you leave the White House is you know you're going to be cognitive and sensitive to anything you would do or say that would ruffle the feathers of your new employer. And that's human nature. Mm -hmm. And when you're in a position of high public trust like the White House, you cannot have any conflicts of interest. You, you cannot worry about saying something or doing something that would upset them. And so it, it really is a problem. I, 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 I think she's made a mistake in the way she's gone about this. She should have just had the confidence and the faith in herself that she's going to land on her feet, leave the White House, and then begin the negotiations, begin the discussions. That would have really been the ethical thing to do. And it would have served everybody a lot better. That's interesting. There's another critique of Jen Psaki that I've seen. I'm curious to get your reaction to it. Let's get to that next. My guest is Ari Fleischer on the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Back after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We are back. It's the Guy Benson Show from New York with Ari Fleischer, our guest. Not a lot of time left. So last question also about Ms. Psaki. She did a podcast appearance recently, and on the podcast, she started talking about some of the bills in various states, legislation on LGBT-related issues, Florida being a big flashpoint recently. I've given my thoughts about that law ad nauseum. I have nuanced views on that, positive views about some things, negative about others, including bills in other states. But Jen actually got very emotional talking about the issue and started to choke up and cry on this podcast without Delving into the subject matter, I just wonder, when you were White House press secretary, you were there for 9-11, right? There are some very emotional things that happen. How did you, or maybe did you not in some cases, manage to keep your emotions in check? Because, look, I don't blame her for being 
emotional and, and invested in some things. She's a human being. She's allowed. That's not a criticism. But there's also a role when you're speaking on behalf of the president to maintain a certain level of composure and strike the appropriate balance. I just wonder what you think about that. Just an open-ended question. Yeah, I'm not critical of that guy. You, you know, your job as press secretary is to speak for the president. You're not speaking for yourself, but it's inevitable that something inside you comes out as you do your job. And, you know, you asked about September 11th, and I, I, I do remember as a somebody who was born in New York City and raised in a New York suburb, talking to the press corps about my my view of Manhattan and how I'll never see the World Trade Center again. You, you know, that wasn't speaking for the president. And, you know, I was a little emotional when I said that. There are moments when press secretaries come to life, and they're not just the spokesperson for the person they represent. At all times, their views have to be consistent with the person they represent because nobody elected the press secretary. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I find no fault there. It, it's the substance aside, as you said. I find no fault in that one. Yeah, I think that's fair. Ari Fleischer, former White House press secretary, as we've been discussing, a Fox News contributor, president of Fleischer Communications, at Ari Fleischer on Twitter. And coming up July the 12th, it is suppression, deception, snobbery, and bias. Ari blowing the whistle on reporters and hanging them with their own words. It is a read that I am looking forward to with bated breath. And Ari, we will talk to you hopefully before then, but certainly then, because I think it's going to be a must read and we're excited. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. Can people pre-order the book anywhere? They sure can. They can get it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble. They can get it at any of the sites where ebooks or books are sold. Amazon.com is, is one. Boom. There you go. Ari Fleischer on The Guy Benson Show. Ari, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, guy. And we'll be right back after this. It's the happy hour, and we'll be right back. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Earlier on today's program, we caught up with our Fox News radio colleague, Jimmy Fallon, host of Fox Across America, right before our show on many of these same stations. And Jimmy is a comedian. He's a riot. We had a lot to get to with Jimmy today here in studio. And boy, did we. Here's part of our conversation with Jimmy Fallon. John Hinckley Jr., the man who shot Ronald Reagan mm. and tried to assassinate him, I believe shot three other people huh? uh, in that same incident. Reagan almost died. He is on the precipice of an unconditional release from court supervision, uh-huh. and he is going on tour. He's a musician. He's going to be performing, and his first show is already sold out in Brooklyn. <laughs> and they're, so like the club is promoting special guests and all this stuff. <laughs> And I read there was a story about it in Washingtonian, and my favorite element of the story, because it's generally pretty horrifying. My view is sort of old-fashioned. If you try to kill a president, you're done. There's no more freedom to be had. Time was. It like, was really hard to book a concert date as yeah. a presidential would-be assassin. Yeah, yeah, I think like that's, that should be the end. But he, he's sort of waxing nostalgic about his life and now his rebirth as this artist and going out on tour – He's like, well, people just think of me as the guy who shot Reagan. I'm like, yeah. Yes. That is who you are. You know, no one ever talks about what a handball player Osama bin Laden was. You know, for some reason. They never gets the credit for being as good as he was. The lateral movement alone. Uh, there's a part of me that isn't surprised because of all the people who, like, write love letters to prison inmates. Mm-hmm. But then there's this other part of me that is so blown away by the idea he could be a draw. Like, I'm, I'm flat out wondering if there was, like, a— Not even that he's a draw, that he's— 
going to be out of prison at all. But he's even out, let alone selling out in Brooklyn, which, you know, if you know most people hanging out in Brooklyn, it doesn't really surprise you. But I was like, I was half wondering, like, is Guns N' Roses on tour? Like, is there a band with, like, guns in their name that somehow he linked to is all I could think of? Because why would you go to this? And can you, do you really think there's a world where he can sing? Like, was he on a... A reality show called America's Got Issues or something? I, I don't think the people necessarily care if he's good. They care that he shot Reagan and he's out and they're going to go see him. Like, that's, that, <laughs> that's these, the appeal. Who are these people in Brooklyn that are still that mad at Reagan? You know what I'm saying? Long memories. <laughs> Long memories with these it's weirdos. Like a... I, here's my question. Is Hinckley Jr. going to get up on stage every single show consumed with a desperate, overwhelming hope as he searches the faces in the crowd that Jodie Foster is there. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, yes, he was that's, to, yeah. that's why he shot Reagan in the first place, to impress her. It's so crazy, and it never works. To anybody out there thinking about shooting some, it never works. It I mean, never impresses the girl? No, the guy who shot John Lennon, it didn't work out. No, it never works. You don't, you don't wind up getting a girl. And uh, it is. It's so, it's so weird, but it really speaks to where we are as a country that, you know, they always say there's no such thing as bad publicity. There really is more so than ever, though, and I think it has to do with the age of true crime. There is almost some type of, I guess, there's like an allure to criminals now in a way there never was. Like they were out there, we'd we'd cover them. Well, like mafia movies have been popular, yeah. for, but that's like a little different. Like, but we didn't go crime. to an evening with John Gotti. Right, you know what I right. mean? When they right. hold up the applause sign, you better clap. Yeah, clap loud. <laughs> you can have a big Keep problem. Clapping. Over it's here. like Kim Jong Un style. Yeah. Don't stop. <laughs> Don't stop clapping until Mr. Gotti says it's okay. But yeah, like you're backstage. Let's say you're the next act, and there's like you can hear the crowd, the packed house, and cheering. It's like. Whoa, like, they love you, man. Like, where'd you get your big star? He's like, oh, well, I shot a president. <laughs> My big break. He was an overnight success. Yeah. Yeah, when, when they say David Hinckley killed, it's, it's a different metaphor, although he didn't in real life, thank God. I will say about the attempted assassination of Reagan by John Hinckley Jr. back in 1981, there's a book, the definitive book about it is called Rawhide Down. Rawhide was With the Secret code, Service yeah. code name. Rawhide Down, it's written by a, gal, a guy named Del Quentin Wilbur. He's a fellow Northwestern alum, years ahead of me. Always a plug. He was a, he was a writer at Washington Post. I think he's at the L.A. Times now. That full interview and all of today's show in its entirety, in fact, every show, every day, for free, it's all available on demand on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, the gang's all here in New York City. The Guy Benson Show team assembled at Fox News headquarters. We've got a big night ahead. A big night in and then a big night out. Producer Christine is wearing her Tuesday best. We'll talk about all of that next on The Home Stretch. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Tuesday on the Guy Benson Show. Bouncing out of here and heading off to Gutfeld World. I'm here in New York for a lot of TV. Gutfeld tonight, 11 p.m. Eastern Fox News Channel. Filling in for Kennedy tomorrow and Thursday. I've got, I believe, America's Newsroom on Thursday on Fox News Channel. Then Cudlow on Friday, Fox Business. So I'm going to be busy here while I'm up in New York. And I'm perfectly happy to do it. It's actually... Fun to be back with a full slate on set and that sort of stuff because for a long time we couldn't. And now truly it feels like with these mask mandates going away, normalcy is not fully restored but getting there. 
So any opportunity that you might have to watch or listen, we appreciate it. Here on the radio side, it's always the same. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, every weekday, GuyBensonShow.com. Whether we're in D.C. or New York or anywhere else. And the podcast is also consistently always free of charge, on demand, GuyBensonShow.com. And I teased on the show yesterday that I was on my way up. I was going to head to special report for the panel and then off to the train. And that went according to plan. What was not planned was my seatmate on the train. And I talked earlier in the show about how I knew that the judge had thrown out the mandate when I got on the train. So my plan was no mask. Wasn't going to wear it in the train station. Wasn't going to wear it boarding the train. Wasn't going to wear it on the train when he was coming around taking tickets. I was going to be maskless because that was the prevailing ruling of a federal judge that applied to the whole country. And then right before I got on the train, Amtrak had put out a statement saying that it would become a mask optional situation. I did not get a single hassle or word from the conductor. So that was all good. The guy sitting next to me, as I talked about at the top of the show, was kind of like enviously looking at me without my mask on, like, are we allowed to do that? So I showed him the statement from Amtrak on my phone. I was like, hey, this just happened. And then they later on announced mid-ride that it was a masking optional situation, and a bunch of people took their masks off. Mine was already off, of course, never on yesterday. So once my seatmate took the mask off, once I showed him that tweet with the quote from the Amtrak leadership, I thought I recognized him. I'm a bit of a foodie. I like some of these cooking shows, especially Top Chef. We had Tom Colicchio on the show, who's the head judge. We should try to get him back, by the way. I know Christine's on it. She's trying. But this guy, I think I've seen him on Top Chef, maybe as a judge. So I Googled just to make sure I was right. Of course, I'd also heard him talking. In French. So I was like, I think this is who I think it is. And the Google images turned up, yep, that's him. I actually had met his daughter a few times. She's friends with my cousin. There was another connection that I had. So I decided to be not weird about it, but just say, I'm so sorry, sir. Are you Daniel Balud? I mean, world famous chef. I think it's fair to say one of the top 10 most prominent chefs in the world. I think I think that's probably fair. You might quibble, but he's way up there. And he's got his flagship restaurant here in New York, Daniel, high-end fine dining French since 1993. He's been packing that place for almost my entire life. It's really hard to have that much success, and he's got now a whole network of restaurants all over the country and all over the world. And he was extremely friendly. He said, yes, that's me. And I explained, oh, I've met your daughter. And I talked about a few other family connections we had to other people that he knows. And he was just absolutely delightful. And I had been doing a lot of work on the train. I had a tiny bit more to get done. And then we just chatted for probably two hours. And I kept worrying that I was bothering him. And he had stuff to do. But he was totally game. And he was bringing up new topics of conversation. He whipped out the iPad, was showing me photos. We're talking about his family and his upbringing in a farming community, a farming family in France just outside of Lyon. And he's like, here are my parents, and they're still doing great in their 90s and all this stuff. He had stories, amazing stories, about going and cooking for communities in need when they've been struck by a disaster. And, I mean, it was just 
as someone who's really into this kind of thing, it was surreal. I was like, I can't believe I'm sitting with Daniel Balud talking food. And he was asking questions. He's definitely into news. He was asking about the French election, if I had any thoughts on that. And I had one or two thoughts because that's upcoming. And he just could not have been any nicer. I guess he we took a selfie, sent it to his daughter. She's like, oh, yeah, he's at Fox News. He's like, oh, you're at Fox. How's that? What do you do? So I showed him a clip from Special Report. And he's like, oh, where you know, where's your radio show based and how does that work? So, I mean, he was very curious as well. And it was just a fabulous experience. I will admit that the commute back and forth from New York is not my favorite part of the job, like the actual being on the train. I get work done. That is true with my little Internet hotspot. But it's like it's like three and a half, four hours. Feels like it should be faster than that. It's not. This one just flew by, and he gave me his card, and maybe I'll, like, save up for four months and go to Daniel, his restaurant at some point. He's opening a new one. It was just awesome. And I just want to say it's really special to meet someone at the very top of their world who is just welcoming and down-to-earth and cheerful and chatty and You might think, oh, a very, very high-end, fine-dining, celebrity French chef. You might think, you know, with certain stereotypes, maybe he's not the friendliest person you'll ever run into. Like, oh, just sort of the the nose-in-the-air attitude. Not even close. That was not the Daniel Balut experience for me. And so a lot of you were like, who the hell is that? Right? He's not a household name necessarily, but I was pretty stoked about it. And so it made that train ride just fly by. And producer Christine, of course, is a little curious about it. And Christine, we got to get to some of these questions quickly because we also have to tell the folks about our big night in then our big night out that we have planned tonight. Well, that's real. I mean, you answered probably everything. I just have one question. Obviously, we're going to eat at his restaurant tonight. And what time is the reservation? <laughs> yeah, so uh, you might want to have to sell a second house. For us to go have dinner at Daniel. So if you've got a second house that you can uh, sell or take out a second mortgage, then maybe. Now, look, it's it's definitely a very nice restaurant. My friend Zhang Toy has been a regular at Daniel for years. So I texted Zhang. I'm like, I'm with Chef Balud on the train. He's like, oh, tell him hi. And he's like, oh, I love Zhang. I'm like, this is surreal. Like, I'm not that person. I'm not the type of person who's typically hanging out with fashion designers and top-level chefs just as a matter of everyday life. So to just be in the middle of it, even for just a few hours, even on Amtrak, was pretty cool. So I'm still having like an extra pep in my step today from that. It was just an energizing thing. And I did get, I don't even know if I'm allowed to say this. I'm going to say it because I'm a top chef fan, as I mentioned. That's your second reminder this segment to try to get Colecchio back on the show, Christine. I figured that out. He ballooed told me that, how can I put this? I'm going to say hypothetically, hypothetically, he might be making an upcoming appearance on Top Chef Houston the current season. I can't confirm or deny. He asked me, did I maybe want to know more information? And I said, no, no spoilers, please. So I'm just putting that out there. Very excited for that. Also very excited for the plan tonight. So here's what we're doing. This is Pretty crazy because Dan, our engineer, has been with the show for more than half a year, like seven-ish months at this point. 
He and Wyatt had never met until yesterday. The team is all in New York because I was going to be here for a stretch of days. Wyatt was like, maybe I'll come up to New York, New Jersey, see my family. We could all get together and do not a Guy Benson show retreat, which we've done in the past and will do in the future. This would just be a Guy Benson show dinner out, a night on the town for the team and all the besties and then also Christine. And we have a reservation at a restaurant that I really like. It is not super high-end, but it's good. Christine and I have actually been there before. Dan is nodding as well. Wyatt has not. Wyatt's a picky eater. So let's hope that he is satisfied with this option. I think he will be. I have a good feeling about it. That's a later reservation because before dinner, they are going to all come with me to the Gutfeld taping. They are going to be the studio audience for Gutfeld tonight which is a dangerous thing. Or a guest. We don't know yet. If they hear this, you joking about just like creeping onto the set during the show, you will definitely be disinvited, and I might get disinvited. Well, I mean, they may see me. Greg knows me. Like, maybe he's going to just be like, come on up. Does he know you? He knows me. Yeah. Yeah, sort of. I don't think he would know my name necessarily, but he would see me in the hall. I go, you. Yeah. Hey. He barely knows my name. It's fine. But it's going to be fun. And you guys are going to be, I guess, sort of in the back of the studio and watching all the magic happen. It's myself, Susan Lee from Fox Business, Joe DeVito, I think his name is, one of their writers, very funny guy, and then, of course, Kat Timpf, and then the man himself, Greg Gutfeld, 11 p.m. Eastern time. And if you hear any wild over-the-top, extremely loud New Jersey laughing in the background tonight. It will be Wyatt. And then, you know, Christine will also be present. So are you guys excited for the Gutfeld experience or the dinner experience or both? Because I'm excited for both. Oh, yes. I'm I'm excited for both. Um, and I'm excited for Gutfeld. I used to go to all the Gutfeld tapings before it was a week show, weekday show. I used to go all the time for the weekend show and used to see Greg in the beginning of my Fox career. So You were like 14 at the time, right? And so you were not exactly the target audience necessarily for Gutfeld, although, I mean, they, they, they bring in a younger demographic for sure. I will admit I'm like slightly nervous about it because – Typically, when I'm on the show on Gutfeld, there have been live audiences before, and then they kind of went away for the surge on Omicron. I'm not sure what the plan is in terms of bringing the audiences fully back at some stage. I'm sure that's in the works. But usually it's just people that I don't know who are sitting in the audience. Or if I do know them, they're mixed in with a bunch of other people. In this case, I feel like it's my radio team. That is the audience. It's just you guys. So if I'm not good, it's like you guys are the only people there, and I'll just be hearing the crickets and knowing where the crickets are coming from. So you got to do some, at least some like pity laughs or something, even if I'm bombing. Okay, last question, and then uh-huh. I know we got to go. Are you more worried about my behavior or your performance? Oh, as usual, your behavior. That's that's an easy call. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. And Wyatt also has that, you know, chloroform cloth just in case. Like, hey, Christine, does this smell like chloroform? And then she's just, she's just asleep, and then she wakes up at the restaurant. And we've ordered her a Cosmo, and everything's fine. 
why it would never drug a lady. Just for the record. I just want to make sure that that's very clear. Just before we like end the show that we don't go out on that note. But please do watch Gutfeld tonight at 11 p.m. Eastern Time, Fox News Channel. Back here on the radio tomorrow for the Guy Benson Show, 3 to 6, GuyBensonShow.com. Have a great night. See you on Gutfeld. And thank you for listening. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.